Hi, Leona Jacobs. Um, Alice, you talked about natural pesticides as well, and I'm involved with the community garden at the university, and we're trying to be organic, but there's, of course, the same issues with weeds and insects and stuff like that. So are there the same kind of dangers when you're using um, what might be perceived as natural things, mixtures of vinegar, for example, or, or integrated pest management strategies, that sort of thing? Those are, um, that's a very, very interesting topic, and uh, it's close to my heart because I'm a, I'm a passionate gardener myself. And um, it depends on the product. So I gave you three examples of natural insecticides that kill through a very potent mechanism of action, which is to interfere with the activity of the neurons in the insect or in other species. So that would be an example of, of chemicals that you would have to be very careful about, use them the, the, the right way, and if possible, not use them at all. When you talk about uh, vinegar or um, clay, um, you know, there's a powder made from diatoms that can be used as well for earwigs. Uh, those are chemicals that are very efficient and uh, are an interesting alternative. So I would encourage you to, to read the labels and see what is the active ingredient, right? And what, are the, what is the signage on the bottle that, you, that, that you're getting? Pardon me? Yeah, so there's, uh, I, I don't really have time to go into it here, but uh, there, is, uh, there are labels on all the bottles, and uh, you can go on the web and then find out what does it mean, right? So does it mean that you have to wear gloves when you apply it, or, or you don't have to worry about dermal exposure, right? So there's different signs on the bottles. But certainly, anytime you can avoid using uh, chemical pesticide that would have effects on other species, great if you can do it, right? But you may have noticed that the domestic use is less than 1%. So in a way, I don't want to be discouraging you, but you know, we may worry about our little garden or our little lawn by our house and try to be responsible. That's all great, but 96% of pesticide use is done on a large scale all around us, right? And it is in the air. We can smell it in the morning. Uh, Terry Shillington, thank you very much for your uh, factual presentation. I wonder if you could say more about the bee story. Uh, it was raised to me by a farmer who was irate in a fury about people campaigning against the pesticide that was so important mm -hmm. to his economy, and uh, I, I'd like to know more about it. Yes, so that's, that's a, a, a very, uh, it's an issue of great concern. Uh, I know that already in southern Alberta, we, uh, we do have a problem with pollinators, and I believe we, we can move, uh, we have those little, those little orange tents that you see on the fields that are moved around, and they're basically, you can rent Right, you can rent bees and, and bumblebees to pollinate, and uh, they do it in Europe as well. Uh, so the issue of uh, a decline in bee populations 
it's a fact. I mean, there is a huge problem. Uh, the use of pesticide was linked to that decline, but it is not a 100% clear story either because they also talk about uh, viral infections. Uh, they talk about kind of a inbreeding in the hives. So even that story is not, we cannot say that for sure it's pesticides because there are other elements involved. So it is, it is a topic that we all care about. If there are no pollinators, there will, no, will be not be there will not be fruits and so on because so many plants depend on pollinators. I mean, not all; some are pollinated by wind. But uh, uh, the story is not as simple as it may it may seem. Uh, Mark Sandylands, uh, thank you very much for your talk. I have two questions, uh, totally unrelated. Uh, the previous question about neonicotinoids. Um, I understand the problem is that it's put in the seeds and then the substance uh, resides in the plant. So when it grows up and, and uh, it's in the flowers, and that's what affects the bees. Uh, so is this mode of action being used in any other kind of thing, or is it only possible with neonicotinoids? The second question, your pie chart showed a huge use of herbicides, and I assume most of that is uh, Roundup. Uh, could you address the possible toxic effects of Roundup or glyphosate? Yes. So the uh, I don't really have a, a good answer for your first question because you asked me about the neonicotinoids insecticides and whether they would have an effect on other other organisms as well, right? Okay, and the mode of application, you mean the, by in, incorporating into the seed. Um, I guess I, I, I cannot really tell you. I don't really know the answer. Uh, I would think, I don't know the literature enough to tell you how many different pesticides are administered that way, but I know it's a way, it's a, it's a very efficient mode, uh, but I don't know the, the details, I cannot answer. And the second question was about glyphosate. So uh, I know a little bit about it, and uh, I, actually, I actually wrote a review on, on glyphosate, which is published in the, in the Journal of Applied Toxicology in um, 2013, so just last year. And uh, so glyphosate is uh, it's a, it's a, it's the active ingredient of Roundup. And Roundup and glyphosate-like Herb, it's a herbicide, right? So it kills uh, plants. And uh, the use of glyphosate was very low. And then an amazing discovery was made by, by Monsanto. And uh, they were able to incorporate a, a gene into several crops, soya beans, potatoes, corn, that would make them resistant to the glyphosate action. Right, and canola. Yes, of course, Elan Redbridge canola. All the yellow fields that you see—that's canola, and it is what we called most of it is Roundup Ready canola, meaning that those plants, those canola plants, have have been genetically modified to be resistant to glyphosate. So that's a brilliant discovery, and you could say, well, that's wonderful. Maybe we'll be using less of glyphosate 
But actually, the use of glyphosate, and it's in my review article, just is going sky high because we use glyphosate and on all those glyphosate Roundup ready crops, right? Because then the crop doesn't get killed by the Roundup or the glyphosate, but all the weeds, all the other plants do get killed. So the use of Roundup and glyphosate like herbicide has gone sky high and it's increasing. And around Ledbridge, it's certainly one of the highest of, of, of herbicides that we use. By the way, I know that uh, Dow Chemical is working on a 2,4-D ready soya bean already because a lot of the crops that are Roundup ready are becoming, uh, are becoming, or the insects are becoming resistant to glyphosate, so it doesn't work anymore. And so now there's going to be, probably very soon, 2,4-D ready crops, meaning that the soya bean will be resistant to 2,4-D, and all the other plants will be killed by 2,4-D. And there's going to be a lot of 2,4-D sprayed on fields. Did I answer your question? So toxic effect of glyphosate, I actually uh, know quite a bit about it because of this review that we wrote. And uh, as far as health effects on humans, there doesn't seem to be any big scary issues that I came across. But where it is significant is effects on amphibians and also fish, but especially amphibians. Because a lot of amphibians... Uh, live in little puddles near fields, and so they get exposed by drift, by the spray drift, and they are, amphibians are very sensitive to glyphosate. Next question. A lot of questions. Yeah. I'm in the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, my name is Charlie Luca. Uh, I was wondering about uh, companies uh, producing these uh, chemicals. Uh, they must be concerned that if it became very evident that the toxicity was affecting people and there may be protests and this type of thing, I would think that the companies would be watching this and trying to produce chemicals that uh, possibly break down and become less toxic. Uh, what do you think? That's a very good question. And uh, all I can say is that if the effects are major and very, very clear, then, of course, the company does not want to be linked to those effects, right? But if the effects are subtle, difficult to detect, then it's easy to ignore or we don't have the tools to actually demonstrate it. So... That's why I think these studies in California, in the, the Chamaco study, are very significant because we are talking about effects on children's IQ. That is very close to our heart, right? Because we all have children, we have grandchildren, and we do not want their mental performance to be affected by a chemical in the environment. So I think we should, I certainly will keep an eye on those studies and hopefully maybe there'll be one done here. But uh, 
that the, end, that the short answer to your question is that if the effects are subtle, then it's the company will not necessarily encourage to demonstrate them, right? But major effects, yes, yes. Uh, Lauren Fitch, I, Hi. Uh, I hope that the tomatoes in our meal today weren't from the Salinas Valley. Uh, thank you, Alice. And I, I just wonder, you touched on it briefly, but I wonder if you'd expand a bit more on the increasing resistance mm. of target organisms, and as well as some of the synergistic and cumulative effects of a variety of chemicals used for, for purposes. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Those are, those are very good questions. So the um, synergistic effects, we haven't even started to address those. Because, of course, in, the, in our environment, we are exposed to many, many chemicals through maybe pesticides, but maybe in, in food and air. But we, there, there are also uh, food additives. There are uh, perfumes. There are chemicals in our personal care products. So all those have the potential to interact. And, of course, it's very difficult to study those and to demonstrate these kind of effects because it makes it it's even more complicated. So um, we haven't even started to actually characterize those, but there are tools. And for example, epidemiological studies, and the Chamaco study is an epidemiological study. That, that is an approach where we assess the health of a organism, whether it's a human or, a, or, or a, it can be a wildlife uh, species, and then we linked to exposure to a mixture of, of all the chemicals that may be in the environment, right? So there are, those are two that, are, that we have, but it is expensive, it takes time, and it is difficult to obtain clear, clear data. You asked me something else that I didn't answer. Oh, yes, that's right. Increased resistance. So increased resistance, it's, 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 we, we read about it in the, in the news and so on, because eventually there is going to be a, a change in the, in the effect, and those pests become resistant right? By, by mutations, by evolution. And the pesticide that used to work no longer works. So that is a, a big issue. And it is a scary issue because it means that we need new pesticides, right? If, if the old one doesn't work, we need a new one. And that is where I am very concerned because if there is no funding to actually assess and test those new pesticides, they will be put on the market too soon and we will be taking shortcuts. And we may end up with a new pesticide that does kill the pest we need to get killed, but the risk portion of that risk-benefit ratio is going to be too high, and we will not know because it hasn't been assessed properly because of the cost of the testing. Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Uh, just a quick comment on, on gardening. Uh, I would argue that... Uh, if uh, farmers put the same amount of pesticides on their fields as gardeners does in their garden, it would be it would be disaster. 
Anyway, my question is uh, related to systemic insecticides. Uh, could you uh, comment on the uh, risk factor in them as compared to a spray-on? So systemic, systemic pesticides, the, the classical definition would, is that those are chemicals that would be uh, absorbed by the organism and they affect all the organs and all the systems in the organism, right? And the, 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 the difference between, you say, spray-on pesticides or systemic pesticides, the uh, spray-on pesticides can still affect all the organs and all the systems if they get absorbed, right? So the exposure that's relevant to us here is through air, through water, and through food. It could be also through dermal contact, right? And depending on where we, what are our, our occupations, we may be exposed as a, what's called a bystander exposure, because we may just smell it in the morning. I may smell pesticides. I live on the west side, and I can smell pesticides in the morning because they're getting sprayed right now. Or I may be the worker who actually applies them. So there the exposure might be higher, right, that, that I may get as a bystander. But whichever way the exposure occurs, it may still affect the whole system. So I don't really see that as a... As a as an issue that's that important in the, in the, as far as the effects on the health. Uh, Dr. Honteller, I'm Trevor Page, and I certainly do remember your talk here eight years ago, and I'm glad to see you back. Thank you. Um, over the last year, Lethbridge residents have become sensitized to the health hazards of fracking for oil and gas and the toxic chemicals that are injected uh, into the earth under great pressure. But looking at your chart on the amount of agricultural runoff that goes into the Old Man River, I'm wondering whether our concern for health hazards shouldn't be heightened from the use of pesticides. Uh, my question actually deals with the government regulatory body, if there is one, that tests the water to see whether, in fact, the chemicals in the water are hazardous to our health. You've mentioned amphibians. I remember your talk eight years ago on that. Um, and I guess the concern is particularly heightened when we looked into the oil industry and the Alberta energy regulators' inability to actually check what is going on, and it's all left to industry to go ahead and do what makes the most uh, do what makes the most money. Is there is there a government regulatory body? Do they have the ability to check? Thank you. There, there is a government regulatory body in, uh, in the United States, the U.S. EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. In Canada, it's uh, Health Canada, Environment Canada. In Alberta, we have Alberta Environment. With all these agencies, the issue is 
funding problems, lack of staff because of cutbacks, and uh, I think inability to really take the time it takes to do a good job on these various tests. So I'm an optimist, and I have a great confidence in science, but lately I became concerned that we are not able to actually do the good science because we don't have the resources. And I have colleagues in the government, Department of Fisheries of Oceans, a very close colleague that I collaborated for years who actually worked on pesticides in Winnipeg, in Manitoba. And his lab got closed. Closed. Fifteen people, including him, and he was, uh, he was a scientist of international reputation and highly respected. And he was not too young and not too old. He was at the perfect age. He could have done so much more. And he got fired. He, he got let go. And all of us just went, really? Is this possible? And it is. So that is scary. Was that a federal agency? It was a federal agency. Next, yeah. next, <clears throat> next question, please. Thank you. Uh, my name is Joseph Natuck, and I just introduced myself uh, half an hour or so ago to you. I'm uh, currently a member of the Health Canada's advisory council to uh, to uh, the pest management pest management regulatory agency. So uh, there, are, yeah, there are there is somebody in Canada that regulates these uh, approves pesticides, as you know. Uh, I, I guess uh, the question I have, and uh, uh, I wish I would have known you a long time ago because I could have used your advice when I go to these meetings, and uh, I'm I'm learning, but. I think we all are. My, my question is: is the fact that uh, bees have been a big issue uh, in, in Canada, especially Eastern Canada, but also in Western Canada? And I'm wondering: uh, is there any research going on at the present time regarding how they are affected? Uh, what really? Uh, what are the, the physical impacts of, of pesticides on bees, particularly? Because I have some colleagues that are that are uh, bee uh, producers mm -hmm. uh, in Western Canada. So is there any kind of research going on? If not, I would like to meet with you, and maybe I can, the next time we go to a meeting, we can pass that information on to the agency. Thank you. There the, the are studies done. There are uh, research projects done on this topic because it's such an important topic. Uh, I don't have it uh, with me right now. We can certainly meet... Uh, just send me an email and we can arrange a meeting. And uh, there is some important research going on. As far as I know, it's in Eastern Canada, mostly. And uh, I know this from, through, through my work with the NSERC uh, funding agency, because I've, I read some proposals on, on these kind of studies. So I, I cannot give you the names right now on top of my head, but yes, the short answer is yes. Joel, please. Uh, yes, uh, the previous question sort of addressed some of the aspects of the question I want to uh, raise. My name is Cheryl Bradley, Hi. and I appreciated your presentation, Alice. Thank you. Thank you. Um, in terms of regulating pesticides, um, I get the sense that it's something that maybe could be addressed at more of an international scale. 
because many of the pesticides used are used throughout the world in many countries. For example, the neonicotinoids were, their effects on bees was first alerted through Europe, as I understand, Mm -hmm. and some work there. Um, So I just like your views on, is there a, a way of kind of bringing the science together at a, a, an international level that then translates into regulations for countries throughout the world? And, and, and what are the variations? Like, does each country have to do a cost-benefit? Or could is there a way to sort of um, maximize the use mm-hmm. of resources so that globally we all learn from this? There, there certainly is, and uh, the, um, for example, we are very much dependent on what US EPA does, right? So in Canada, Environment Canada, Health Canada will closely follow what US Environmental Protection Agency does in, in terms of regulations, and they will rely on that, maybe build onto it a little bit, but we are using their results. Right, so there is a lot of uh, kind of a harmonization or international harmonization on these topics. There are conferences that people go to on these topics. I'm sure there's a conference probably on the issue of with bees and and uh, the decline of the populations. So that's another way of people exchanging information. It is worrisome when I hear from colleagues who work for the federal government that they are not allowed to go to conferences. And that's a fact, right? That, that, is, that is a very serious issue that there is actually a limit on how much communication you can do, right? And in the university, we don't have that. We can go to any conference we want as long as we can afford to pay the, the trip, right? Those are some of the limitations. So there is harmonization, and, uh, but there are also, there is a need for specific or, or country-specific regulations for example, Canada, with our climate, our winter, right? We need different regulations than, let's say, uh, Central Europe, where it's warmer, because cold temperature will affect the half-life of the pesticides. So they may stay around longer, or they might behave differently, right? So yes, there is harmonization, but there is also need for region-specific regulations. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Hunter, uh, if I may be forgiven, one question for me uh, regarding risk assessment and complexity of the issue. Uh, in my reading, I learned to my horror that these chemicals, when they are applied to the land, they, of course, percolate into the soil, and then the bacteria get a hold of them and change the chemical structure of these chemicals into other chemicals, and we really don't know very much about what these other chemicals do to anything. Is that true? It's true and it's not true. <laughs> it's true for some chemicals. I mean, some chemicals do get uh, modified by soil organisms and they get changed. They may become less active or more active. But there are also chemicals that are very resistant to these kind of various uh, biotransformations or biodegradation and they remain in the environment for a long time. So it depends on the chemical, and uh, all to know this requires, again, you know, studies, 
and there is a lot of literature on this, so we do know a lot of things, but we do not, we do not know everything. Thank you very much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you all agree with me that we are extremely fortunate to have the Canadian Research Chair of Ecotoxicology right here in Lethbridge, and we all benefit from it. I think it was just awesome. Thank you very much, Dr. Hunter. <laughs>